are we as believers supposed to obey God and his commands or do we live under grace? Are we under a covenant of grace and so our shortcomings and sinfulness are pardoned or should we strive for holiness and good works? We probably don't hear questions like that exactly, but we will see them played out with sentences such as this. I'm saved, so let me have as much fun as I can while I'm here because there's grace for me. I'm saved. That's secured for me, so now I can do whatever. Or I need to do my good deed for the day so that I can be right with God, so that I can get back right with God. And these are two ends of the spectrum that ultimately ask the question, is the Christian life one of faith or obedience? The answer is both. John 3.36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever believes, whoever has faith, whoever trusts in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see this life. Believing in Christ and obeying Him are the same thing. True faith is obedient faith. However, there's a disconnect here because of two fundamental misunderstandings of the gospel that are prevalent in our day and they have been for centuries now. And they are this. In order to be right with God, I have to obey. Or, I'm already right with God, I don't need to obey. The truth of the gospel lies right in between these two. The truth of the gospel says, I have been made right with God by a gift of grace through faith in Jesus. Now it is a joy to obey. I do not obey in order to be made right with God, nor do I seek to run away from obedience because I've been made right with God. The truth of the gospel is this in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, so there's no works that we can do. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. And so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Before this salvation, we were slaves of sin, obedient, obedient to sin. But in conversion, we, we become slaves of Christ, obedient to him. How? Hebrews 11.8 says this. By faith, Abraham obeyed. It's supposed to be the same for you and I. But oftentimes, it's not. We need help. With this in mind, let's read. Acts 5, verse 12. Now... Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that, even, uh, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with them, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, 
An angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with them, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee, in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan is the undertake, or if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us, and we admit and confess that we are utterly sinful. Our minds are constantly plagued with sinful thoughts. Our bodies are constantly plagued by sinful actions. So, Father, we are going to have to have you show up. We cannot read this and know anything about what you have for us unless you give it to us. So, Father, magnify your name. Glorify your name in us as you show us your word, what to be transformed by. And in that vein, Father, if there is anything that I say that will 
take away from your glory, if there is anything that I say that is opposed to your word, I pray that you would help us to all forget it. And if there is anything, Father, that we think that is opposed to you, would you remove it from our minds? Help us to see who you are. Help us to see your Son, that we may behold him and him alone. Give us right thinking. Give us right theology about who you are. And we know that you will. We know that this is a work that you can absolutely do. And so we pray for it. We thank you and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. From our passage, we see three aspects of obedience that will help you and I in our obedience to God. If we are called to obedience, if we are called to obedience by faith, what does that look like? Three aspects of obedience that will help you and I. One, we have to see the cost of obedience. Two, the motivation for obedience. And three, the hope of obedience. One, the cost. Two, the motivation. And three, the hope. We have to count the cost of obedience. We have to know how much it's going to cost us so that when we do obey and things happen, it's not a surprise to us. And then we have to know our proper motivation for obedience because when suffering does come, we have to be properly motivated. Guilt will never work. And then three, we have to know our hope. Our obedience is unto something. What is that? We've been made right with God through faith in Jesus, and now it is a joy to obey our Father. But first, we count the cost. <coughs> Believing in Christ and obeying Him are the same thing. True faith is an obedient faith. So first, uh, let's define biblical obedience. Obedience is simply adhering to the commands of God. Jesus says throughout the Gospels, you are my friends if you do what I command you. If you love me, Keep my commands. And blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey them. So these commands, whatever they are, are something important. Because in so doing them, we see our proof of our love. If we do them, it shows that we love our God. If we are obeying these commands, it shows that we truly do love Jesus. If we are disobeying these commands, it shows that we do not. So what are these commands? There are thousands of commands throughout the Bible, but in Romans 13, uh, Paul has just mentioned, uh, pay taxes to whom taxes are owed and pay respect and honor to whom respect and honor are owed. And then he says this, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the fulfilling of the commandments. So our obedience shows itself in the form of loving others. Why? Why are all the commands summed up into 
love because of the mission of God to redeem his people from their slavery to sin. This means that obedience to God looks like loving my neighbor as myself because by doing so, I'm inviting them to see the greatest love of all. Love is the way we fulfill our obedience to God because love is obedience to God. Love is the fulfilling of the law. So what then does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? We see it in our text. Start in verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees. So these were men who adhered to obedience by the law. They were not loving their neighbor as themselves. They actually killed an innocent neighbor, Jesus. Uh, And so they were filled with jealousy because of the following and the esteem that uh, they had with all of the city of Jerusalem because it used to be them. People would see them laying their offering of money down and see them praying loudly and with lots of words. And uh, people thought that they were awesome. And then so the Sadducees and Pharisees thought, well, yeah, I guess we are awesome. But now there's these other guys. They're still in the limelight. So they're filled with jealousy. Verse 18. So they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Humiliation. Everyone can see. But, verse 19, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. This is miraculous. I don't even know how this happened. We see later, they're standing at the doors, but that's the same doors that are opened and these people walk free. I don't know how it happens, but the angel of the Lord gives them a command. Go. And stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And what do they do? Do they give any sort of, well, I'm a little busy right now. No. Verse 21. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Why? They're obeying God. No matter the cost even though they know the rage of these men that that they had, enough to kill Jesus and enough so to kill them, yet they know God is to be feared more than man. Obedience is costly. But these four verses are just a beautiful picture of the Christian life. They were locked away with no way of saving themselves. But God, in his mercy, provided divine salvation and set them free. The public prison was a humiliating place to be. Everyone could see them, which makes the breakout even more amazing. No one sees them. It's a humiliating place, much like you and I, in our sin. And yet God steps in to save. We do nothing to make ourselves free. It is an act of complete mercy from outside of us. But it's not only that. They were saved unto now a costly task. Not just unto paradise with no clue as to what to do in the meantime. They're given a mission. God's mission. It's the same for you and I. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says this. But you, Peter's writing to believers, which would be us. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are saved under this mission. We're given a great call to proclaim the greatest news in the universe, and this is our obedience. This is the love that God calls us to. Why? Because what else is more loving to a human being than to offer them an eternity of joy and worship of the great and humble king of the universe? Of course, it's loving to fix someone's plumbing or to buy them a couch or to invite them to a party, but any one of us can skip any of those and not be in sin. Not so with sharing the gospel. How much do we have to hate someone not to offer them forgiveness? God's mission is the redemption, the renewal and restoration of humanity, creation, and justice for the glory of his name. And so the most loving and obedient act that we can perform unto God is to do exactly what we've been saved to do, proclaim the gospel. And this is the central point of the book of Acts. In chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We believers, upon being saved, have been entrusted with the power of the Holy Spirit for the mission of God, the redemption of his people by proclaiming the good news of the gospel that Jesus has come to save. We've been called to a mission. The question is, am I obeying this call by faith? Are you? We start by counting the cost. We have to know what we're getting ourselves into by stepping into this obedience by faith because it comes with a great cost. Three verses, 1 Peter 4, chapter 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Uh, I have a professor at school who, uh, he was a pastor. Their church fell apart because he said, I didn't prepare my people to suffer. And so when it came, we fell apart. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Acts 14, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to obey God by loving our neighbors as ourselves, by proclaiming the good news of the gospel, we will be persecuted. We have to count that cost. We have to know this. We may not be hung or crucified, but we will lose some of our comfort. We will lose some of our time. We will lose some of our ease. We will lose some of our isolation. And the best news is that it means we will lose some of ourselves. It's good news because these are idols that don't deserve a second of us. So we lose them as we obey, and we thank God that we do. It is costly. It is costly to obey God by speaking the words of this life 
And we have to know this cost going into it. Otherwise, when we try, it's going to be too much. And we'll run. We will fall apart. So we have to ask ourselves, is it worth it? Verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Right here, Peter answers the question of whether or not the cost is worth it. Listen, man, I know that you guys killed Jesus, and I know that you can just as easily have me put to death, and I know that you probably will, and they will, but I must obey God rather than you. It might cost me to obey God, but it would cost me a whole lot more if I don't. This is the truth of obedience. It's going to cost us either way. I either lose my life or I lose my father. So I will obey God every time. I wish that this was my heart toward God. I wish that we had such a high view of God that every cost he calls us to count, every price he calls us to pay, every cross he calls us to bear would be seen as light and momentary in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. So then the question is, are you running from obedience for fear of man? Are you fleeing from obedience right now because of the cost of it? The truth is, we all do. And counting the cost alone is never going to help us uh, to grow here. And so we have to be properly motivated. This is point two. The motivation for obedience. Believing in Christ and obeying him are the same thing. True faith is obedient faith. And so Peter answers the men trying to kill him. We must obey God rather than men. What is his true motivation? Verse 30. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Why why must we obey God rather than men? Because of the love extended to us in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14 says this. For the love of Christ controls us or compels us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. How does the love of God manifest itself to us? How can we know for sure that God does love us in the person and work of Jesus Christ? That we have been justified by God in Christ. That we have been adopted and called sons and daughters. That our condemnation that we deserve in our sin against God has been washed away. That we are seen as holy and blameless in His sight despite how sinful we are. 
that we are his. The work of the gospel, this love of God made manifest in the person and work of Jesus Christ, this love of God compels us toward obedience, motivates us toward obedience. And so the gospel is our motivation to obey. We have to see that obedience isn't truly costly because under, <clears throat> because under the love of God, we see ourselves differently. We know God is for us. We know that God is going to protect us. We know that he's going to provide for us. We know that he is all we need. That, the good news that we have in Jesus, that is what moves us toward love. We've been set free from every need. We've been set free from, we have everything in Jesus. And that compels us to obey. But it is only so in the gospel. Outside of the gospel, obedience is too costly. And we will get bogged down by trying to obey on our own power. That's typically where we lead into legalism. And the pastor will stand up and say, here are five things you need to do in order to be better. And then we all hear it and we're like, yeah, wait, I'm not good at that. And we get bogged down because we're trying to obey on our own power. We're never, we're never shown Jesus. The power of the Holy Spirit reminds us of what we know. That we have been made new. And with this newness, I will be on mission. The rest of the verse in 2 Corinthians says this, For the love of Christ compels us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. So, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded, regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. So the gospel creates empathy. It creates compassion. It creates the love that we are to have for others. And it gives us a divine experience of grace. So now we're able to extend grace. Past, present, future, all of my sins have been completely taken care of in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I am totally and completely and absolutely forgiven. The truth of this leaves us with no pride. Truth of this leaves us with nothing but tears in our eyes. Because we know. We know how deep and destructive and how sinfully dark and marred our hearts are simply by what we think and do. Yet in Jesus, we stand forgiven. And I say, wonderful mystery beautiful paradox. This is our motivation to obey. Otherwise, we have no motivation. It's all on us. God's mission is the redemption, renewal, and restoration of humanity, creation, and justice for the glory of his name. And so the most loving and obedient act ever performed was the gospel itself. Jesus living a life that we could not live to die a death that we deserve to die that we might have eternal life in glory. And so by this love, we are compelled, we are motivated to love. 
this love is our true and only motivation to obey God, and by it, we will. In knowing this love, in waking up every morning daily to remember this love, striving to rest in it, thinking about it at all times, living in it, standing in it, singing about it, talking about it, by this love, we will love others. Without it, we will not. This love is our motivation to bear any cost for the sake of obeying God rather than man by loving other people. And if that alone wasn't enough, we see our motivation, but then we see the hope of our obedience. Point three. Believing in Christ and obeying Him are the same thing. True faith is obedient faith. Look at verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care of what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and paused there. Gamaliel is half right. He knows part of the truth. He knows, hey, if you do this, it's not going to go well for you because it cannot fail. It cannot be overthrown by man. It's not going to work. But what he doesn't see is that it's absolutely not going to work. You, cannot, you absolutely cannot overthrow it because both of these men who drew men to themselves, they died. Jesus died and was resurrected. They're still in the tomb. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. The mission of God will not be overthrown. The same mission that you and I are called to in our salvation, it's a mission that no one can stop. So this means that our part in the mission cannot fail either. What if we share the gospel and someone gets mad? What if we share the gospel and someone doesn't care? What if we share the gospel and now it's super awkward between us? What if I share the gospel and I don't have the right words to say and I mess it up? God's plan cannot be overthrown. God's mission will not be overthrown. God will use Holy Spirit-empowered witnessing to his glory. There is no perfect human, so there is no perfect proclamation of the gospel message from a human. It is God using imperfect humans like us to bring glory to his name. Jonah gets swallowed by the fish because God says, go to Nineveh and you know, proclaim uh, repentance to them. And Jonah doesn't go. And then he gets uh, eaten by the fish, gets spit out, and he's like, okay, oh, yeah, I guess I'll go now. He goes. Listen to his sermon. He says this. This is his gospel proclamation. He's got a, he had three days to work on it in the fish. Yet... Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. That's all he said. What? Where's, what? 
But the, the most amazing thing, like that's a horrible sermon. God uses it. The very next verse after his sermon, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's all he says. The very next verse. And the people of Nineveh believed God. It is not us that saves. God saves. And God cannot be overthrown. If it is, if it is of God to share God's gospel, and it is, then no one, not even us, can overthrow that plan. Why is this true? Because of point two. Our obedience to God's call cannot be overthrown because ultimately it's not even our obedience to begin with. Romans 5.19 says this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the hope of our obedience that Jesus was obedient enough. Jesus was obedient enough to, to be perfect before a holy and just God, and yet he gives it up for the sake of those who would believe that they might stand perfect and holy in his place while he takes on their sin. The obedience needed to be right before God was declared finished at the cross. And so now we can obey we get to obey. It is a joy to obey. It is our, we get to find our greatest joy and treasure in glorifying our Father, knowing, number one, that it cannot fail because Jesus did not fail. And this is our hope. And by this sheer act of love that we see in Jesus, we will have eternal life through him. Our hope is actually twofold because the list of verses that we read earlier about the cost of obedience here uh, is only here on earth. But look at what is to come in Jesus. Revelation 21 says this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Behold, I am making all things new. Believing in Christ and obeying him are the same thing. True faith is obedient faith. The cost of our obedience is light and momentary. It is earthly. The motivation to obey, the motivation for our obedience is found in the love of Christ to us alone. And the hope of our obedience is that Jesus was obedient on our behalf. And we rest there. And the work it takes to be righteous before God is finished. There is no act of obedience nor disobedience for those in Christ that will separate them from Christ. And so we obey. We love. We proclaim 
this gospel, all while knowing that who we are in Christ shall never be shaken. Today, our response is to celebrate. And we do so with the Lord's Supper. By these symbols, by the symbols of Jesus' body and blood, we remember the life, death, and resurrection of Christ together as a family. And we look forward to the ultimate day when we will be doing this together in glory. And Jesus will be leading us in that one. If you're a believer, you're welcome to the table to partake as a family. However, if you're not yet a believer, or if you're in unrepentant sin, I ask that you would remain in your seat in this time, as God's word says that you would be eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. If you're in unrepentant sin, turn from your disobedience. Turn from your sins again today to obedience. And do so by faith in Jesus again. Jesus has forgiven you of the very sins that you are sitting in. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in him. If you truly are in him, you have no reason not to return to your father. There's nothing but grace left waiting for you. If you're an unbeliever, as it stands right now, there is no eternal life for you. Because of the sins that you choose to commit, there is only eternal death and destruction and hell waiting for you at your death. And there is no way to be right before the Father on your own. But Jesus lived and died that you might have eternal life. Would you trust in his finished work on your behalf so that you may live? Would you turn from your sins, turn from your disobedience and hear and believe the good news of the gospel that Jesus loves you? there is a way through him. Believe in him today. And if you're here this morning and you feel unworthy of this love and you feel unworthy to partake of communion with the family, there's no other way to come. <coughs> Unbelievers don't worry about such things. This is a work of the Spirit in you to think that thought access to the table is not something for the worthy, but a gift given to the undeserving who come in faith, in repentance, in love. If you have doubts or if your trust is wavering, come to the table to be reassured that yes, your sins are forgiven. For all of us, here is our prayer. Father, I admit that I am unworthy to behold this gospel and I confess my sin of disobedience to you. Would you, by your grace, remind me of the love you have for me in Jesus that I might give my life to live it for you and for others. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Take your time to pray through what it is God has given you by his word. Whatever it is God is laying on your heart to pray through, pray through it. Examine your life. Repent of your sins. 
And when you're ready, the elements are at the back of the room. Grab them, bring them back to your seats, and we'll take them all together here in a minute. story in our passage from today. All of that happened and they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And what did they do? They went on teaching and speaking in Jesus' name. So I wanted to leave us with First uh, Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This Jesus is our true and only hope. Our true and only hope that we have been forgiven and our true and only hope that one day we will be perfect and we will be in his presence. And Jesus is our true and only hope that in the meantime, the plan cannot be overthrown. All because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. That though we sit in nothing but our own sinfulness and muck and mire and darkness, and though we are what the Bible describes as dead in our trespasses and sins, you sent your Son. Though we do not deserve an ounce of mercy, you freely give it. Father, would you 
Let this love compel us. Would you let this gospel motivate us to obey you, to glorify you, to love others as, as we love ourselves? Let us show with our lives what is true in our hearts. In all of it, Father, we thank you. We thank you that we have any hope at all. And we pray that you would give us more. We believe, but help our unbelief, Father. Help us to believe as we sing praise back to you in reflection of your gospel. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.